Paul is writing to the Galatians, this group of churches in the Roman province, the region of Galatia, in defense of the Christian gospel of grace. It's Paul explaining and arguing over and over again that we're saved by the grace of God alone when we place our faith in Jesus. The point he keeps making is that there are no good works that we can do, no special lifestyle we can live that will contribute to our salvation in any way. There's nothing we can do that will make God love us. It's the grace of God alone that saves us. Sola gratia, as the reformers would say, it's grace alone in Latin. If you learn one thing today, sola gratia, grace in Latin, impress your friends at parties. Paul wrote this letter in response to the teaching of the Judaizers. They were Jews who had infiltrated the Galatian churches and were teaching that in order to be saved, in order to be right with God, you had to become Jewish and begin following all the Jewish rules and regulations and customs. In other words, they were saying, unless you do this long list of things, you can't really hang on to your salvation. You're gonna lose it if you don't go all in on becoming Jewish. The Judaizers claimed that they were following the Old Testament scriptures. That's what they were saying. Listen, we're men of the word. We're following the scriptures. Paul isn't. So multiple times in this letter, Paul has referenced things in the Old Testament to show the evidence that it was always God's plan for us to be saved by faith and not by works. Now, after reminding the Galatians of his deep love for them and the deep love for him that they once had, Paul is now going to go back to the Old Testament and focus on a pivotal part of the life story of Abraham. Specifically, Abraham's first two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. And Paul is going to use this part of Abraham's life to show that living under the law, living by trying to be a good person to earn your way to heaven is not the pathway to salvation, but the pathway to spiritual and moral bondage. And if you're interested in studying the part of the Old Testament we're going to be referencing today, you can always revisit our Genesis series. We studied this when we went through that, and I listed the specific scriptures on your outlines if you want to check that out this week. So let's jump in. Galatians 4, we'll begin in verse 21. Paul says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? He says, you guys who want to rely on the law for your salvation, you who believe you can earn your way to heaven by obeying the law, do you even understand what the law actually says? Now the term the law was used to refer to multiple things by the Jewish people at this time. They would use it to refer to all the rules and regulations in the Old Testament, including the Ten Commandments, all the actual laws. They would call that the law. They would call the whole Old Testament the law. And they would also refer to the first five books of the Bible as the law. Those first five books are known as the Torah in Hebrew or the Pentateuch in Greek. And in this instance, Paul is referring to those first five books of the Bible. And he's saying, you guys who want to live under the law, do you know what it even says in there? Do you know what the scriptures say? Because the Judaizers were likely saying something along the lines of, listen, unless you obey the law, you're not a real son of Abraham. So Paul says in verse 22, for it is written that Abraham had two, underline two sons, the one by a bondwoman, underline bondwoman, the other by a free woman, underline free woman. So Paul flips the script here right off the bat and he says, the question for all of you is not are you a son of Abraham? 
The question is, which son of Abraham are you? Because he had two. And he focuses in on these two different mothers who each bore a son to Abraham. And Paul begins by pointing out, Abraham really had two quote-unquote firstborn sons. He had Ishmael, who was the son of a slave woman. That's what bondwoman means. And he had Isaac, who was the son of the free woman, the son of his actual wife. Now, if you'll recall the story from Genesis, if you don't, I'll fill you in. Abraham and his wife, Sarah, had lived long lives without ever being able to have children. Prosperous, blessed everywhere they went, but they couldn't have kids. And they were at a stage in life when it looked like that window of opportunity had slammed shut. Sarah was barren, Abraham was in his 70s, and this was in a pre-pharmaceutical age, that's all I'm gonna say. And yet in that season of life, God met with Abraham and he gave him a promise that he would have a son. And that through his family line, Abraham would become the father, the grandfather, the great, 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 great grandfather of more people than there are grains of sand on the seashore or stars in the night sky. Well, time passes. Abraham says, cool, great promise. Can't wait to see it happen. Time passes and Abraham gets to 86 years of age. Sarah's still a sprightly 76 and nothing's happened. And Sarah begins to observe the obvious, namely that this promise coming to fruition was looking increasingly unlikely. Sarah got impatient when it looked like nothing was happening, so she came up with her own plan. She went to Abraham and she said, she said, listen, honey, maybe God is waiting for us to take the initiative and make this promise happen. You know, like God helps those who help themselves. So, so why don't you sleep with my much younger maidservant, Hagar, and get her pregnant? And then if she has a son, we can claim him as our own, which was a custom of the day, and, and we'll have our promised son. Abraham thought deeply about Sarah's request. He, he pondered and, and wrestled within his soul and conscience for at least two seconds, and then he agreed to her plan. And, and wouldn't you know it, Hagar has a son. So Abraham and Sarah claim him as their own and, and they name him Ishmael. Ishmael is the son by a bondwoman that Paul is referring to here in verse 21. That term refers to Hagar's status as a slave or as a, basically an indentured servant. So God then shows up and he meets with Abraham again and he says, Abraham, like, what are you doing? What do you do? I told you you would have a son, and you know what I meant. I meant that Sarah would give birth to a son, and it's through that son that I would keep all my promises to you. Do you remember our covenant? Our covenant back from Genesis 15, Abraham? Your only role is to believe that I'm going to keep my promises. That's all. You don't have to do anything else. You don't have to provide anything else. You don't have to make anything else happen. I'm going to take care of everything else. All you had to do, all you have to do is believe. And Abraham says, okay, okay. And sure enough, the miraculous happens. When Abraham is 100 and Sarah is 90, Sarah gives birth to this promised son and names him Isaac. And Isaac is the son by a free woman that Paul is referring to here in verse 21. That term refers to Sarah's status as a free woman as the wife of Abraham. So why does God wait so long? Why so long? Well, here's a promise for you, Abraham couple of decades go by before that actually happens. What's God waiting for? 
He wanted Isaac to be a miracle, a clear and undeniable miracle. He didn't want anybody to be able to say, well, listen, I know some 70-something-year-old guys who are still in really good shape. God's like, no, make it 100. Let's not get anybody confused about the fact that this is a miracle. Abraham 100, Sarah 90, miracle. Everyone gets it. That's why God waited so long. And that's the story of how Abraham ended up with two quote-unquote firstborn sons. Have you noticed that whenever God makes a promise, there's almost always a gap of time between the promise and its fulfillment? Maybe you've had a promise from God and you've observed this. You're like, great, I'm ready to receive it. And God's like, yeah, it's coming at some point in the future that I know and you don't know. Just hold on in faith. And it's during that time of waiting that it's so easy to become impatient. And when we become impatient, we generally make bad decisions because we say, well, listen, man, time's running out. I got to make something happen. I got to make this thing happen. And most of us could tell a few stories about times in our lives when we decided to help God keep his promises. And spoiler alert, it it never went well. God is always faithful to his word. He keeps his promises, always. But when we try and do it for him, we end up with a bunch of little Ishmaels running around. We get left with the natural consequences of our bad decisions. God still keeps his word. God still comes through but we've still got the natural consequences of the bad decisions we made when we got impatient. So would you write this down? When we try and help God keep his promises, we end up dealing with challenging long-term natural consequences. Natural consequences, i.e. Ishmael's. Those natural consequences. Such a good thing for every one of us to learn. Such a good thing to teach your kids that listen, God forgives us. He loves us. He frees us from our sins, but he does not free us from the natural consequences of our sins. We're forgiven, we're right with him, but we still gotta deal with the natural fallout of the things that we did. It'd be great if we didn't. But Jeff, doesn't the word say that God helps those who help themselves? No, it doesn't. Nowhere, not anywhere in the Bible ever. The word says that God helps those who cannot help themselves. And the word also says, by the way, that's all of us. That's all of us. The word says that we were dead in trespasses and sins. Dead. And then in Romans 3, Paul writes, there's none righteous. No, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There's none who does good. No, not one. And then in Romans 5, he writes, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. The good news of the gospel is that God helps those who cannot help themselves. Thank God for that. Thank God for that. Verse 23, Paul says, but he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise Here's the idea. Ishmael was brought about by human effort. He's a work of what the Bible calls the flesh. The flesh is just that part of us that we rule and control. Our desires, our own lusts, the things that we want to do. 
Ishmael came about as a work of the flesh. Abraham and Sarah's scheming and planning, their doubts and fears and their momentary lack of faith. In contrast, Isaac was a work of the spirit. He was the result of God miraculously keeping his promise. Why was God so particular about this? Why did he have to be the one to provide the son for Abraham and Sarah? Well, Paul tells us the answer at the beginning of verse 24. He says, which things are symbolic. Would you underline symbolic? Here's what he's saying. What God was doing back then through Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac was designed even back then to serve as a prophetic picture, a prophetic illustration of how God was going to provide salvation to everyone in the future. So that's why God wanted this to be done a very specific way. In God's mind, he knew, listen, I know that you guys don't know that you're modeling something that's gonna take place a couple of thousand years from now. But I know that, so when I tell you to do it this way, do it this way, because something bigger is going on than just you and a kid. I'm doing something bigger than you could possibly understand right now. And here in Galatians 4, Paul's gonna talk about that side of all of this, what it all represents symbolically. Why do we take it symbolically? Because Paul just told us it's symbolic, that's why we do it. Ishmael represents the doomed works of the flesh while Isaac represents the destined work of the spirit. Furthermore, Ishmael will therefore represent trying to gain salvation by the law while Isaac represents salvation through faith in the promises of God. And Paul's about to pick a serious fight with the Judaizers right here. Because the Judaizers would say, well, we the Jews are the sons of Abraham. And the ones who will inherit all the promises that God made to Abraham because we're descended from Abraham. We're descended from Isaac. So if you want to be a son of Abraham, obviously you need to become Jewish. In this letter, Paul's already explained that the real sons of Abraham are those who place their faith in God to save them, as Abraham did. He's already made the point that being a son of Abraham has nothing to do with ethnicity. It has to do with faith. Do you have faith like Abraham had? Have you placed your faith in God the way Abraham did? But now Paul's taking it a step further. He's not only saying, listen, your ethnicity is not what makes you a son of Abraham. He's gonna say, you're actually a spiritual son of Ishmael, by the way, which would have been incredibly incendiary for Paul to say. Jesus, by the way, was equally contentious on this point. He told the Pharisees and Sadducees, there's nothing special about the fact that you're ethnically Jewish. He said, listen, if God wanted more sons of Abraham, he could just turn those stones into sons of Abraham. He's God, he can do whatever he wants. And then Jesus took it a step further and said to them, not only does being Jewish not automatically make you children of God, but it doesn't even stop you from being children of Satan, like the Gentile unbelievers. And by the way, you guys, you are actually children of Satan. So Jesus picked a huge fight. Paul's doing a similar thing here. Check out his fighting words here. He says, for these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, listen up, there's two covenants. There's the law and there's grace. The law was given on Mount Sinai and is now centered in Jerusalem. And the law is being represented symbolically by Hagar, the mother of Ishmael. 
She was a slave, and so she produces slaves, just as the law produces spiritual children who are in bondage. They're in slavery. They're held down by the law. And the law will enslave your life if you try and live to save yourself by being a good person. The law is a master that demands everything of you and yet is never satisfied. Your whole life doesn't become about God. Your whole life becomes about the law and trying to be a good person. And the tragedy is that you can never meet the standards of the law. Paul's saying religious Judaism is in bondage to the law. It's the offspring of Hagar, the slave woman. And then he says in verse 26, but the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. Some of you will remember from our Revelation study that the word actually tells us that many things that God commanded to be built, like the tabernacle and the temple in Jerusalem, are actually patterned on what is in heaven right now. There is a Jerusalem on earth, but there is a heavenly city that Paul is calling the heavenly Jerusalem here as well. And he says the Jerusalem above in heaven is free, and that's the mother of us all. That's a heavenly city that's not ruled by the law, it's ruled by grace. And in the heavenly Jerusalem, anyone who lives by faith in the promises of God finds his place in the family of God, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your background. He's saying Sarah represents heaven, the mother city of all believers where we all find a home and citizenship with all its rights and privileges. And Paul points out that only those who come from Sarah, only Isaacs, only those who put their faith in the promises of God can ever be truly free. In the letter to the Hebrews, we're told that Abraham himself wasn't longing for the earthly city of Jerusalem. He longed for the heavenly city. He said this, by faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations whose builder and maker is God, is God. See, Abraham wasn't longing to get to Jerusalem. He was longing to get to heaven. He longed for heaven so much, he didn't even see the point in actually building a house while he was on the earth. By all accounts, he's likely the wealthiest person on earth for several decades of his life, and yet he lives in a tent because he got this glimpse of heaven that was given to him by God, and after seeing heaven, he just wasn't that excited about stucco and siding. He was like, it's not gold or pearl. God doesn't live in there. I'll just stay in the tent. It's fine. We'll just wait this thing out. The writer of Hebrews then also contrasts Mount Sinai and Mount Zion, earth with heaven, when he writes to us believers saying, for you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest. That's what happened at Mount Sinai. But you've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem. It's a stunning statement Paul is making about Judaism. He's saying that Hagar and Ishmael represent the work of the flesh and therefore they represent the law. Hagar represents Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments and the city of Jerusalem. The Jews felt that things like the Ten Commandments and the temple were the pinnacle of spirituality. The rituals, the sacrifices, the ordinances. But Paul says, listen, all that stuff it's all Ishmael. It's all just a work of the flesh and therefore it cannot bring life. It never will. By sleeping with Hagar, Abraham chose to rely on his own efforts, what he could do. 
He was determined to bring about a son by his own work. Here's the thing that's interesting though. He was acting in faith, but the faith he had was in himself to be his own savior. From God's perspective, the pinnacle of spirituality and freedom is believing in his promises and his provision, which is the complete opposite of trying to find salvation under the law or by being a good person. And in a further tragic irony, as you study the scriptures, you'll begin to realize those who seek to live under the law, devoting their lives to doing what they think is good, are in reality incapable of doing even one good thing in the eyes of God. Because according to the scriptures, unless the Holy Spirit is in us, working through us, we can't do anything good from God's perspective. Because it wasn't a work of the Spirit, it was a work of the flesh. Any work that we do that's not motivated by the Spirit of God isn't good because we're doing it to make ourselves feel good. Well, Jeff, what if I was going to serve the poor? From God's perspective, he would say, yeah, but why did you go do that? Well, because I wanted to help them. Why? Because I wanted to feel like a good person. Oh, there you go. Wasn't actually good when you get all the way down to the heart of it. You see, once we realize that we're not saved by doing good, we turn to Jesus, we find salvation, his spirit comes into us, and free from trying to be good ourselves, we're able to do good for the first time as God moves through us. Then in verse 27, he says, for it is written, and Paul's now gonna quote Isaiah 54.1 from the Old Testament. This was originally a prophetic word that God spoke through a prophet named Isaiah to Jewish exiles who were in Babylon. They had been disobeying God and God punished them by putting them in exile in Babylon, allowing them to be conquered by the Babylonians. This happened about 1,200 years after Abraham and about 600 years before Paul's writing Galatians. And all the Jews that were in Babylon they basically all assumed that Israel was over as a political nation. They thought they'd never return home. Israel would never become a country again. They felt like weak and helpless failures surrounded by strong and mighty nations on every side. But when they're in Babylon, the Lord was speaking this word through the prophet Isaiah to them. It's on your outlines. Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Here's what's going on. God's saying to them, now that you understand in Babylon that you're helpless, now that you understand there's nothing you can do to save yourselves and get back to Israel, now you're gonna see the power of my grace at work in your lives. Because those who think that they're strong are too busy relying on themselves to receive my grace. You're not gonna fade away in Babylon. I'm gonna multiply you and I'm gonna take you back to Israel again. And so the parallel that Paul is drawing is to Genesis 16 where God looks down on these two women, Sarah and Hagar. One is young and beautiful and fertile, the other is old and barren, and God decides to save the world through the barren one. Because through one of her descendants would come another unlikely son, in another unlikely circumstance, this time through a virgin named Mary. And through her son, Jesus, God would keep his promise, the one he made back to Abraham and Sarah, that through their family line, all the nations of the world would be blessed. That's just how God works. 
And Paul's doing all of this. He's talking about all of this ultimately to speak to the heart of Galatian believers because they were being spiritually beaten up by the Judaizers. They were being told, listen, you guys are just not good enough. You're not serious enough about your spirituality. You're not real sons of Abraham unless you're under the law like us. But Paul speaks comfort to the Galatians by telling them, you're the barren woman. You're Sarah and look what God did for her. Look what God did through her. Because if salvation is by works, then God is working in a system of merit. And that means that only the, only the fertile can have children. Only those who behave in the most moral ways, only the strong, only those who received a good and godly Christian upbringing, only those who have good track records, only those kinds of people, if salvation is by works, can be spiritually fruitful and accepted and loved and used by God. But that's not how the story goes. It's not how the gospel goes. God fulfilled his promise through the barren woman And the gospel means it it doesn't matter who you are or who you were. You might feel like an outcast in more than one way, like a barren woman would in those days when if a woman couldn't produce children or a son, she was considered essentially worthless. But none of that matters in God's economy because the one who knows he needs God will be used by God and will bear lasting fruit God will move through you, he'll move through them. The gospel's not based on merit, especially for barren Sarah's. And if God can give old barren Sarah a future, God can give anybody a future. Would you write this down? The gospel's not based on merit, it is based on grace. The gospel's not based on merit, it's based on grace. If you wanna dig into this idea more, this is the heart of the parable of the prodigal son that Jesus told in Luke 15, if you wanna revisit that from this angle. The gospel's not based on merit, it's based on grace. You know, in general, all religion and all philosophy teach that God and salvation are for those who are good. And that's a very, very exclusive message. It's only for the good. The gospel is also exclusive because the gospel says that God and salvation are only for those who know they're not good. The gospel's exclusivity is far more inclusive because the gospel makes it possible for anyone to belong to God. When Jesus would be accused of eating meals with tax collectors, prostitutes, and sinners, it wasn't because he's trying to make a social justice statement. That's not what was going on. He was looking for those who knew they were not good. Because in reality, they were far closer to the kingdom of God than those who thought they were good. Jesus was going to the low hanging fruit when he went to those people. He said, you already understand you're not good. You're ready for the gospel. You think you are good. You're not even close. Let's let life work on you for a while. And when we try to earn our salvation by good works, what we're doing is we're rejecting Jesus as our savior in favor of being our own savior. And when we do that, we're not worshiping Jesus, we're worshiping our own works because we're saying the things that I do have the power to save me. I can move the mountains, I am mighty to save, yes, praise me. Non-religious people 
Still worship something because everyone needs to find a sense of worth or value. Whoever you are, you're worshiping something. You're worshiping the thing that you feel will give you meaning and value and significance in life. And whatever that thing is, that's what you worship. But those things, even if you're non-religious, whatever that thing is, it'll control you as you seek it. It'll control your whole life. It will disappoint you when you finally find it. And it will devastate you if you ever lose it. Here's my point. In, in our natural state, where our lives are ruled by our flesh and our own desires, we can be serving God by trying to do good works. Serving God by trying to do good works. Or we can be completely non-religious, but in both cases we're rejecting God. In one case, we're choosing to be our own savior and worship our own works. In the other, we're just chasing a false God that's destined to disappoint us. In both cases, we're looking to be independent from God by rejecting the idea that we're helpless apart from God. We become Ishmael, and Ishmael is always in bondage. Ishmael is always in bondage. Only Isaacs, those who rely on the promises of God, live in freedom. Then verse 28, Paul says, Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of the promise. He says, we're like Isaac. It's a miracle that we're here. We're children of God because God did something incredible. He kept his promise. He breathed life into us. Then verse 29, but as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. Here's what he's referring to. When Isaac was old enough to be weaned from his mother's milk around two to four years of age, a great party was thrown, as was the custom of the day. But during the party, Sarah observed Ishmael, likely a young teenager at that point or older teenager, taunting and teasing, possibly even worse, Isaac, his half-brother. This weird scene, this, this much older child taunting and teasing like a three-year-old. And where... The clueless dad might have said, oh, well, boys might be boys. Sarah knew. She knew there's something deeper going on here. There's deeper issues going on with Ishmael and Isaac because Ishmael is not okay with the fact that Isaac came along and he's the legitimate son. And so Sarah looked at this and she said, this is always the way it's going to be. So Abraham, I need you to send Ishmael and Hagar away. Abraham didn't want to. He loved Ishmael, obviously. But then the Lord came to Abraham and he said, Abraham, every wife's favorite verse, he said, Abraham, hearken to the words of your wife. Just remember when she told him what to do earlier, he ended up sleeping with Hagar. So don't get too excited about that, lady. So in this case, the Lord said, hearken to your wife. Listen to your wife, Sarah. He said, Abraham, send Hagar and Ishmael away. I'll take care of them. Why did God do that? Because Ishmael will always persecute Isaac. The law will always hate grace. Christians who enjoy genuine freedom in the grace of God will always anger those who try to live under the law, those who try to live under works, those who try to live by legalism. It's not just they'll say, oh, that's not quite right. It'll stir up bitterness and resentment within them. Paul's saying to the Galatians, just as Ishmael hated Isaac, the Judaizers hate the gospel of grace. That's why they hate me. That's why they hate the gospel. That's why they hate your freedom. Now remember earlier when we talked about how we have to deal with the natural consequences of trying to 
help God keep his promises, how we end up with a bunch of little Ishmaels running around. The ultimate example of that is the fact that Ishmael was the offspring of Abraham and Hagar. He was the natural consequence of the terrible plan they came up with to help God. And the fact is that Ishmael's descendants would grow into the Arab people. Isaac's descendants would grow to become the Jewish people. Now let me ask you, speaking of natural consequences, is it safe to say that generally there are still 4,000 years later a couple of problems between Ishmael and Isaac? Between the Arabs and the Jews? Little bit, right? Little bit. They've been going at it for a while now. Why are the Jews so hated all over the world? This relatively small ethnic group with a tiny, seemingly inconsequential parcel of land in the Middle East. Why? Why does everybody hate the Jews? Because Ishmael is father to the Arabs and Isaac is father to the Jews. And Ishmael hates Isaac. I also find it interesting to remember where Abraham got Hagar. I wonder if any of us remember the story. How does she end up in the family caravan of Abraham and Sarah? They picked her up in Egypt, in Egypt. Now we can't go into the whole story right now, but in scripture, what does Egypt represent? Always represents the world, always represents the world. The world system that does not worship God, the world system that is ultimately being ruled by Satan. Abraham picked up Hagar in Egypt during his own misguided excursion into the world where he made some really embarrassing mistakes and displayed a kind of glaring lack of faith and good judgment. And many times when, when we come out of the world, whether it's before we were believers or, or whether we've slidden back into the world as a believer, we end up with a Hagar traveling with us or in us. And she just hangs around in our soul serving as a reminder of our sin and failure, stirring up shame and condemnation within us. And we try to deal with her in different ways. Sometimes we just stay away from church and God and from other believers. I'll just never talk about it. That's how I'll deal with it. But a lot of the time we begin pursuing legalism and we try to live a righteous life and we try to live under the law as a way to alleviate our shame and our guilt and convince ourselves that we're a good person. Yeah, I did that back then. Yeah, I made those mistakes. But, you know, look at all the good stuff I'm doing now to atone for all of that. But that never works. And it just produces legalism. And all we end up doing is we end up trying to make ourselves feel better by looking at other people who aren't doing quite as much good as we think we're doing so that we can say, oh, oh, well, I guess I am pretty good. I mean, I'm way better than them or them or them or them or them. And the law begins to produce pride as we get soaked in legalism. And what we really need when we've got a Hagar still in us, still with us, is we need a radical encounter with the grace of God. A radical encounter with the grace of God. To take communion and remember that we're forgiven and there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. To really grasp the truth that Jesus has paid for that sin, it is dealt with. The things we pick up in the world are our fallings and our failures. They will either condemn us or they'll testify to the grace of God. When you've let the Lord heal you, those things become testimonies to the grace of God. Legalism will bring you no relief. 
Trying to atone by being a good person will bring you no relief. The grace of God will allow you to confront your past and your sins, acknowledge them, and be open about the fact that, listen, it's all true. It's all true. But so is the blood of Jesus that covers me in his righteousness. That's true too. Verse 30, Paul says, nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. Paul's point here is that it was symbolic still when God told Abraham to cast out Ishmael and Hagar. It was symbolic in the sense that we too are to cast out any teaching, any doctrine, any person that claims we're saved by works, by keeping the law in any way, shape, or form. We're saved by faith in Jesus, that's it. The fulfillment of God's promise. And the scripture is clear that only one of these two sons is an heir in the father's family, the other is not. Symbolically, those who put their faith in God's promises become heirs in his family. Those who put their faith in the law do not. There's a clear division. One is the true son who will receive all the benefits of sonship. The other son is illegitimate who has no inheritance in his father's family, none. Now please get this, I do not want us to be confused on this. Works and faith, the law and grace, are not two paths to the same destination. They are not alternate ways to salvation or God. One is legitimate, the other is illegitimate. One leads to sonship, one does not. Those who try to save themselves by their good works will not. When it comes to salvation by faith versus salvation by works, The church, Paul is saying, is to have a zero tolerance policy. This is not an issue we get to overlook in the name of unity. We don't get to say, yeah, we've got some brothers who belong to a different fellowship and they believe in following the law and doing that, that they're they're not brothers. That's what Paul is saying. It's not an issue where we can say, well, they're still part of the family of God. If they're teaching salvation by works, that's what Paul called at the beginning of Galatians, another gospel that is no gospel at all. They're not teaching the gospel. They're not believing the gospel. They're not part of the family of God. We're not to tolerate it for even a second. What Paul is telling the Galatians is God told Abraham to cast out Hagar and Ishmael, and that is what you guys need to do with the Judaizers. Cast them out. Send them away. Verse 31, and then we'll just read into verse one of chapter five. Paul says in summary, so then brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. And so I'm gonna say this in conclusion. God doesn't need your help to keep his promises. He doesn't need your help. And if you forget that, if you try and help him out, he'll, he'll still keep his promises, but you're gonna end up with some Ishmaels in your life, some difficult long-term consequences that are gonna cause pain and difficulty for you. So if you're trying to help God out in your life, if you're checking your watch and you're saying, man, we gotta make something happen, because uh, God doesn't seem to be showing up. But you know God spoke to you, he gave you a word. Man, just trust him, just trust him. 
Stop trying to make something happen. Repent and choose to have faith in the promises of God and just wait. Abraham waited 18 years and some of you are thinking, Jeff, it's been 18 weeks. 18 whole weeks, 18 whole months. 18 years he waited. Others in the scriptures waited longer for the promises of God. Don't get impatient. Psalm 27 says this, wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Says it twice, wait on the Lord. In the meantime, write down his promises, confess them, as we talked about in our Mastermind series, even if you don't believe them, confess them until you do. Confess them until you do. Stand on them, hope in them. With that, let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the greatness of our salvation and, and the greatness of your grace, Lord. We, we have writings from people like our brother Paul, but, but Lord, here's what we know, that whatever we think your grace is like, it's bigger. It's bigger, it's stronger, it's better. And it covers more than we could possibly imagine, God. And so we thank you for those that we love that are not walking with you right now, but we know belong to you. Thank you that you don't give up on them. They were saved by your grace, they'll be sustained by your grace, and they'll be with you one day by your grace. And Father, I thank you for the security that your grace gives us. Lord, I, th I think we all know ourselves well enough that none of us would ever say, no, I'm not gonna fall between now and the time I arrive in the presence of the Lord. I'm not gonna mess up badly. I'm not gonna have moments of weakness. We, we know we will. But Lord, we thank you that our hope is not in us being able to keep it together, but our hope is in the fact that you will, you will sustain us between now and the time we arrive in your presence. You will keep us. You have secured us. We're not saved by anything we do or don't do. We're saved by one thing, the fact that we believe in what you've done for us. We love you for that, God. And we thank you for that. And so we just ask, even this evening, if we know that, would you just refresh that in our hearts, Lord, in a way that stirs up new, fresh gratitude. But Lord, if we know that in our head and not in our hearts, Lord, would you, would you minister to us right now by your spirit? Would you minister the grace, the grace of the gospel to each of our hearts in a way that just blesses us and fills us with gratitude, Jesus? Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, 
I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.